I was born in San Bernardino, and I know my parents and my grandparents came to San Bernardino and the Inland Empire because they saw it as a place of opportunity. And I see it not only as a place of opportunity, but one of innovation and inclusion. Paulette Brown-Hines is a local civic leader in California's Inland Empire, publisher of Black Voice News and founder of the multimedia company Voice Media Ventures. When I think of the founding of Riverside, the founder, John W. North, was an abolitionist who wanted to build a more inclusive community in places like Kaiser Permanente, where my father worked for most of his career as the birthplace of this better managed healthcare there in Fontana. And, you know, with global leaders in technologies like GIS in Redlands, California, we have Esri there. So I see it as a special place where anything is possible. You may not have heard of the Inland Empire, located to the east of Los Angeles, but it is one of the fastest growing regions in the country. Larger than many states, it sprawls across 52 cities, from Riverside to San Bernardino, Redlands to Ontario, Temecula to Rancho Cucamonga. Its two counties stretch across 27,000 square miles and are home to 4.5 million people. It includes Joshua Tree in Coachella and Palm Springs, mid-century modern homes and citrus groves, desert and snow, mountains and valleys. Its freeways with up to 16 lanes connect it west to Orange County, Los Angeles, and San Diego, making it a magnet for new residents looking for a more affordable lifestyle as the California coast has become more expensive. It's a former agricultural orange-growing region, turned post-war military and light manufacturing hub, now grappling with its role in a modern economy characterized by digitalization, automation, and global supply chains. It's also home to one of the fastest-growing, most diverse populations in the country, too many of whom struggle to reach the middle class. Well, I've seen the challenges as someone who's been living in the Inland Empire for my entire life, over 50 years. I've seen some of the great prosperity when we had Norton Air Base there, which is one of the reasons my grandfather moved to San Bernardino in the first place. We had nice middle-class jobs. We had opportunities for people who, with very little skill, could build a nice life for themselves, buy homes, raise their family. And I think that in the recent years, we had movement places like the base shutting down and Kaiser still leaving, there were fewer opportunities. And then although we have this huge growth, the types of jobs that replaced those that we lost were not those that could sustain families. So it's harder for people who don't have as much education, as many skills to create that kind of life where they could buy a home and help support their families. This is a special episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. I'll be joined in this episode by Rachel Barker, a policy analyst and engagement strategist with the Metropolitan Policy Program, who conducted the interviews in this episode. You'll also hear from Merritt Gutman, Brookings Fellow and Director of Strategic Partnerships and Global Initiatives, who leads Brookings' work on the Inland Empire, as well as Senior Research Associate and Senior Project Manager Chad Shearer, who, along with Isha Shaw, pioneered novel analytics that made this work possible. Finally, you'll hear directly from local leaders who have come together in unprecedented ways to define a new future for their region.
Growth, new jobs and development has been robust as the Inland Empire has recovered from the Great Recession. But growth alone hasn't been enough to deliver broadly shared prosperity. Al Arguello is also a local civic leader in the Inland Empire and market president for Bank of America. The region has grown rapidly in the last several years, last couple of decades. And you, one would think that the rapid growth in population and employment for a region is a positive trend. And it could very well be, but if it isn't accompanied by economic opportunities such as good jobs, stable employment, and permanent affordable housing, it really can deplete resources and exacerbate the community's economic health. So as we are seeing now, uh, too many individuals are living in the margins, are limited by their zip code, and unable to create a better life for themselves and their families through good jobs and affordable housing. In recent decades, the manufacturing and military presence that fueled the region's prosperity has declined. Meanwhile, the growth of global trade with the Pacific Rim and new goods coming into the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach have made the expansive, cheaper inland empire a natural staging point for the logistics industry. This has created lots of new jobs, but not always jobs that support a middle-class lifestyle. The region's real estate and retail-driven economy was also hard hit by the Great Recession, leaving swaths of newly developed subdivisions and vacant foreclosed homes. These challenges are emblematic of many cities and metro areas, but they're particularly acute in the Inland Empire, which is prompting local leaders to take action. This spring, after three years of intensive collaboration with Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program, local public, private, and civic leaders launched an ambitious strategy to ensure that their region's future delivers on the middle-class dream that prompted so many to move to the Inland Empire in the first place. It's called the Inland Economic Growth and Opportunity Campaign. Paulette Brown-Hines and Al Arguello are its co-chairs. It includes a set of strategies and initiatives driven by data and formed by work groups and committees assigned to stakeholders. But what it's really about is how communities can better focus their economic and workforce development efforts to build both growth and inclusion. It's the story of how, in the midst of disruptive global economic and geopolitical forces, Cities and regions identify special industry strengths to grow more good jobs accessible to their residents. It's the story of how local leaders, the elected officials, business executives, unions, higher education, workforce boards, community leaders, and philanthropists living in these communities can set a vision and make a difference amid these forces. And it's how a national think tank can apply its data and research to action, informing, coaching, motivating, and collaborating to close the gap between insights and reality. Let's keep going with a more in-depth view of the Inland Empire region, its challenges and opportunities, and the new vision for its future. Here's Rachel with former Riverside, California mayor and longtime University of California Riverside professor Ron Loveridge. Loveridge initiated Brookings' collaboration with the region in 2016. The Inland Empire has changed a lot in recent decades, including experiencing some serious challenges to economic prosperity and opportunity, even in the midst of some fairly rapid growth. How would you characterize these challenges, and why is it important for the region to focus on building broader prosperity? There's a book that Michael Storper wrote called The Rise and Fall of Urban Economies, essentially comparing and contrasting Los Angeles with San Francisco in terms of the regions and why San Francisco was more successful than Los Angeles, particularly measured in terms of per capita income and 
his central conclusion, as I read it, was the importance of regional conversations in terms of economy and choices and what needs to be emphasized. And so that's what framed for me the importance of this look at the Inland Empire, although I tend to refer to it as the Inland Southern California's economic future. While you were in office as mayor of Riverside, the region and the broader country went through the Great Recession. Could you talk a little about how it affected the region and the people who live there? Well, there was this part of major growth of housing, and much of that growth has no space at the coast, and so it took place in the inland area. And so the Great Recession hit this area very hard. We spent a great deal of time asking, where are we and where can we go and what can we do? And again, trying to talk about beyond simply being a place where homes are built, how do you create a kind of quality in terms of place? Uh, How do you create a kind of economy where jobs can be here rather than on the coast or in San Diego? And so your instigation, local leaders from the Inland Empire collaborated with Brookings for several years to build broader prosperity. What prompted you to initiate that work? Well, If you ask what is our vision of who we are and what's our narrative, we're trying to define that. We Essentially, we're talking to ourselves. One of the things you learn in elected office, there are a lot of sort of best practices, not only for cities, but also for regions. And so as we look to what future for the inland area, it seemed to me it was incumbent to ask the question, how does this region define itself, support itself, talk to itself? For our region, this is a first of a kind of getting a kind of conversation across different sectors and trying to ask who are we and what's our future? What choices do we have? What resources do we have? How can we do something better? It also reminds people that there are some extraordinary things about this region that is not a region of difficulty. It's a region of opportunity and promise. The question of how cities and regions define themselves in the modern economy isn't unique to the Inland Empire. Even in an expanding economy and in the midst of speculation over full employment, many communities and people are struggling. The nation has added over 19 million jobs during the recovery from the recession, an increase of over 19% since the start of the recovery. However, middle-class earnings have only increased by 3% over the same period. These trends have fueled Brookings' work with cities around the country to expand the definition of economic success beyond simply growth and to empower local leaders with data, frameworks, and tools to build more sustainable, inclusive economies. Here's Rachel speaking with Merrick Gutman and Chad Shearer, who, along with Isha Shaw, authored a report, Advancing Opportunity in California's Inland Empire, Examining the Region's Economic Performance. So we've all spent a lot of time over the past few years helping cities and regions elevate their ambitions for economic development and what they can do to build both more competitive and more inclusive economies in the midst of these disruptive forces. What do city leaders need to do differently to succeed today? The first thing we need to do is adjust the mindset of economic development leaders and elected leaders in regions to think more broadly about what economic success means. Historically, that is focused simply on growth. How many jobs are being created, often forced to be counted on a monthly or weekly basis. 
because economic developers have been held accountable for that simple measure of job creation. It's easy to understand. You can cut a ribbon, you can dig a hole, you can count a number of jobs from a business that's opening or attracted to your area. But that's not enough for economic success. You also have to take into account two other important factors. One is prosperity, it's productivity, it's growth of firms, it's their ability to be sustainable in the economy over the long term and continue to produce quality jobs. The other is inclusion. Who's benefiting from these jobs? Are they able to succeed in the economy in providing what their families need, achieving a middle income lifestyle? So all three elements of growth, prosperity, and inclusion need to be taken into account and strategies need to work toward those as three goals for economic success. Here's Chad explaining how this framework is relevant in looking at the Inland Empire. So what's interesting about the Inland Empire is its growth. It saw incredible growth from the mid-1990s through the mid-2000s up until the beginning of the Great Recession. And really even today, its job growth continues to be among the fastest of any metropolitan area in the country. Where this region has struggled is around prosperity and inclusion. Its logistics sector has been a source of really remarkable strength for this economy. We've seen a lot of new firms entering there, multinational firms coming in and opening new facilities to move their goods in from the ports and into the interior United States. We've seen Amazon come in so that it can distribute goods throughout Southern California. All of that has created an incredible number of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs, and that has made this region the envy of many others across the United States. But the problem is that logistics is not the highest value-added industry in the country, and others that are, you know, say manufacturing, have been struggling in this region for quite a while. California is not always the easiest place to run a manufacturing facility, and that, along with the decline of the defense industry throughout Southern California, but especially in the Inland Empire, has really taken a toll on the region's overall productivity. What it's been left with are its kind of lower value-added sectors, including not only logistics, but also sectors like retail and hospitality and healthcare, which largely serve local markets and don't do trade with other regions. So that's one challenge for this region. Another one around inclusion is that many of the jobs in these less productive sectors just don't pay all that great. If you don't have a whole lot of productivity, then it's hard to pay your workers really well. As a result of that, this region has among the lowest median wages, the lowest average wages of any large region in the country, certainly any region close to its size. And despite the massive number of jobs it adds every year, it continues to struggle from a low employment rate. So these are all big challenges for this region. And we certainly hope that the research that our Advancing Opportunity report presents can help leaders here begin to address these in some very coherent and reinforcing strategic ways. The challenges around job quality in the Inland Empire, in particular, provide an opportunity for Brookings to test new research led by Chad called Opportunity Industries. This work is focused on identifying how local leaders can support the growth of industries and jobs, along with stronger workforce pathways that provide better opportunity for local workers, including those without a bachelor's degree. 
Chad, you've spent nearly three years developing the detailed methodology and findings underlying this opportunity industry's work. Could you walk us through what it explores, why it's important, and what inspired you to take this on? So opportunity industries began as a project looking at job quality and economic mobility in the United States. And what motivated it was the shape of the economic recovery from the Great Recession. In the years immediately following the recession, the big concern in the United States and in most metropolitan areas was around job growth. But as job growth and the labor market recovered, what really became more pressing was a lack of job quality in many of the jobs that the United States was growing in the aftermath of the recession. Many of these jobs had lower wages, There were not the same kinds of benefits being offered, and many people were earning a lot less than they had prior to the recession. And so the concern was that, you know, the jobs are back, but many people are still worse off. Meanwhile, there were these growing concerns, and these concerns continue to be pressing, around the future of job quality in the United States and metropolitan areas because of the threat of automation and changing technologies in the labor market that could displace a lot of workers that have good jobs today. So with all of this in mind, we wanted to then explore what kinds of industries offer good jobs that provide a middle-class wage and benefits that can support a family, and also what kinds of industries provide jobs that can get people there to those jobs. You know, not everybody enters the labor market and immediately has a good job. Some people need time in the labor market to acquire knowledge, experience, skills, abilities in order to compete for a good job. And we wanted to identify those two. And so that's what led us to this opportunity industries work, which identifies those industries that concentrate those good jobs, jobs that are good today, as well as promising jobs, which provide pathways to good jobs in the future. And at a time when we hear a lot about inclusive growth and shared prosperity in cities, what unique lens does this analysis add to the conversation? So it provides a lot of research and information that local policymakers can use to shift the orientation of their economic development and workforce development strategies. Economic development has always been obsessed with industries, and for good reason. Industries need different things to grow. Some industries need to be close to lots of universities where smart people are coming up with the best ideas. Other industries need to be located next to their suppliers. And still other industries need to be located close to consumers. And so economic development has always kind of had this industrial lens that acknowledges that different industries need different things. What we wanted to add to that conversation, though, was this prism of job quality, which industries provide lots of good or promising jobs for what types of individuals. And so we've given these policymakers, economic developers, and their corollaries and workforce development organizations this new information to kind of understand and judge which industries are going to be better for which types of people from, you know, a kind of materialistic or from a job quality perspective. So while working on this analysis at a national level, you also spent significant time digging into these trends and dynamics in the Inland Empire specifically. What did that reveal? The Inland Empire was a really attractive place to do this work because, one, there were leaders there that were poised to dig into this kind of research, but two, because the dynamics of that place. We're talking about a region that is rather poor. 
It's been growing really fast, but it is not a prosperous place by many measures. And so, you know, there's a lot of momentum there behind the economy and its growth, but momentum that's not pushing it in a direction that's good for more people. And so we thought this was an ideal place to kind of pilot this analysis and work with those local leaders who are very keen to put together new strategies and policies that would help more people. And what were some of the really interesting or compelling findings that you uncovered as you dug into all of that data? So what's really interesting about what we found in the Inland Empire is that this is a region that actually has a lot of good jobs and a lot of promising jobs for sub-baccalaureate workers. The challenge that we found there is that despite the large number of good and promising jobs in the region, there aren't nearly enough for all of the struggling workers who need them. This is a region where quite considerable uh, number of workers, people, and families struggle to make ends meet each month. And many, many of them would need to get good jobs in order to get this region to a level of prosperity that's similar to the rest of the national economy. At the same time, despite this deficit, we also found that there's a lot of promise here, um, that the region does have a, a lot of economic momentum behind it. It has a lot of very earnest and committed leaders and that those leaders have strategies available to them that could really start to move the dial on job quality in the region. What could these strategies for supporting good and promising jobs look like? In April, the Inland Economic Growth and Opportunity Campaign released a report outlining how it plans to grow these middle-class jobs, applying Brookings' findings to action. Here's Merrick and Rachel talking about what led up to that. You spent three years taking Brookings data and research to ground and working with local leaders to build the civic capacity and lay the groundwork for this action they're taking now. What did that process look like and what did you learn? As we've increasingly explored problem solving with city regions across the country, we've established a pretty standard approach bridging research into practical application and impact. It involves organizing these diverse groups of stakeholders, undertaking market diagnostics or assessments using the research, but grounded with local researchers as well to ensure that capacity is built up locally and that our national level analysis is enhanced and reaffirmed by local understanding. And then taking all of those actors through a a process of strategy, goal setting, tactic development, and operational design for implementation, getting commitments from the various interests to taking on ownership of those tactics. And finally, figuring out how to measure whether you were successful or not. The Inland Empire strategy, building off your report in collaboration with the region, outlines several ambitious efforts to strengthen both existing industries like logistics and manufacturing and support new ones like cybersecurity. Why are these significant? What we uncovered through the Opportunity Industries analysis and its application to the Inland Empire was there were three areas where you could intervene toward more inclusive economic development and opportunity. The first is looking at your existing sectors, the really big job generators, and determining whether you could improve the quality of jobs in those core industries, those foundational industries. 
In the Inland Empire, advanced manufacturing still has a significant presence. Logistics, obviously, an enormous presence. So the question was, how can we move those kinds of firms up the value chain or those sectors, how we could move those sectors up the value chain in order to generate higher quality jobs over the long term, and how we could benefit also incumbent workers in those sectors to respond to issues of digitalization and automation over the next period of years. Second, we're able to identify emerging industries, emerging sectors where there was likely greater opportunity in good and promising job creation. That helps economic developers and other policymakers to focus their investments and efforts on the kinds of sectors that are going to create the quality jobs we want to see versus looking more toward locally serving sectors or those that are not generating jobs that provide that middle skill, middle income opportunity. The third area, the opportunity industries analysis revealed through the Inland Empire project was how demographics played out in the individual sectors so that could determine whether by gender or race, people were underrepresented in sectors where there was great opportunity and how you might be able to target those underrepresented populations through workforce interventions, through outreach, in order to make certain that they were able to take advantage of these opportunity industries. So it had implications for training and community colleges and the people or institutions like faith-based organizations that connect those individuals to those promising and good jobs. So how have local leaders started applying these insights? And how might the Inland Empire look differently as a result? Let's go back to the region and learn more. Here's Rachel speaking with Paul Granillo, President and CEO of the Inland Empire Economic Partnership. A real cornerstone of IEGO is expanding growth and opportunity by strengthening and upgrading both existing industries and then also supporting the emergence of new industries like cybersecurity. I want to talk about logistics in particular because that's an industry that's getting more and more attention on a national stage with e-commerce retailers like Amazon. Logistics has a long history and legacy in the region. Can you start off by telling me how it emerged as a cornerstone of the region's economic strategy? So I think you have to look at the price of land. And as Orange County and Los Angeles County started to be built out, and as the logistics sector advanced and the need for larger and larger buildings started to rise to the top, then there was a natural match in the Inland Empire where we had land in which to build these facilities, which was also attached to two class one railroads, which is also attached to the interstate highway system going east, west, and north-south. Geographically, it was well-positioned. Now, nobody, even I think 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, could really forecast the growth of e-commerce and how we as consumers have radically changed the way in which we are purchasing goods. And so with the rise of fulfillment, 
the need for facilities to be created in order for us to get what we want, which is our goods delivered to our homes as quickly as today. Well, the infrastructure to support that had to be created. And if you look at uh, regions around the world, what exists in the Inland Empire is really cutting edge for its size and for the impact that it has internationally, nationally, and for the state of California. And logistics hasn't always supported the highest quality or the best paying jobs. There's also significant potential for change in the logistics industry with automation. What is your vision and the region's vision for the potential of logistics in the region and for it to evolve into an industry that really supports growth and opportunity? So I think that we have an opportunity to pause. We have an opportunity to partner with the logistics industry, which is also part of the wholesale goods industry, and partner with our education partners and look at what jobs are going to need to be created in order to support the logistics industry moving forward. So what do I mean there? Automation. There is going to be the care and feeding of automated systems. The drones will come. And we have the opportunity to be leading in the testing in the United States on drone delivery. We have to look at the systems within the warehouses, our need as consumers for, again, having our goods as quickly as possible means that there's going to be new models of fulfillment, maybe a smaller footprint or um, multi-story closer to the inner urban core in order for goods to be delivered. All of that's going to require research. All of that's going to require partnerships. And I think that the Brookings recommendation that says the logistics industry in the Inland Empire is so big, right, that it gives us a competitive advantage if we're doing the hard work of looking at the future, of doing the research, of creating strong partnerships um, between business and academia and government in order to make sure that regions like ours that are very susceptible to the loss of jobs uh, in the future, that that isn't going to be the case because we saw that there was a potential threat and we have started the conversation about how we're going to turn that threat into a competitive advantage. A big part of strengthening the region's advantage in logistics is launching a university and industry-led center of excellence. The center will help the region move up the value chain, upskill existing jobs, advance innovation in the industry, and leverage its presence into complementary sectors. Janice Rutherford is a local supervisor in San Bernardino County. Her district includes over 400,000 residents, spanning Rancho Cucamonga into the San Bernardino National Forest. Here she is speaking with Rachel. What would that evolution in logistics look like, and what will it require to succeed? It certainly requires us to improve our quality and completion of basic education. It requires our folks to be willing to learn more about robotics and automation. And it requires an understanding that we're not going to be as concerned about 
moving the boxes and the trucks as we are about the machines and the artificial intelligence that figures out how those boxes and trucks move. It's really going to require a, a collaboration with higher education and industry with our hardworking people to dream those dreams and to test them out here. And we've got the facilities and the people who are willing to do that. We have to create a center for excellence in those areas that brings together the best and the brightest and lets us be the world's workshop for how we do this better and smarter. You've mentioned this new vision for logistics with modernized warehouses and new jobs and new types of jobs. Could you talk a little more of just what that vision is and what you think that could look like in the region, maybe 10 years from now, if this really succeeds? 10 years from now, what I hope to see is that we have more people employed in companies or creating companies that make the robotics and automation and artificial intelligence that run logistics warehouses and logistical transport services. We need to not just be providing the personnel who work in those warehouses and who drive the trucks. We need to have the people who create the software that's going to make that truck autonomous. We need to have the people who service the robots that actually pull packages from shelves and ship them out the doors of warehouses. We need to be that technological center rather than just the warehouse center. In addition to upgrading these foundational industries like logistics and manufacturing, the Inland Empire is also focused on tying together regional assets to accelerate newer emerging industries that tend to generate a greater number of promising jobs. One of those is around environmental technologies and green jobs, building on a recent announcement that the California Air Resources Board will move its research headquarters to the region. Another is cybersecurity. Here's Rachel speaking with Brian Hawley, a local cybersecurity executive who co-chaired the Emerging Industries Task Force for the regional effort. Cybersecurity is obviously such an important emerging industry today with, you know, the proliferation of hacking and the cloud and and all that is digital in our economy and in our lives today. What kind of opportunity do you think that the Inland Empire has in establishing a real foothold in that industry? Oh, I think the opportunities are significant. You know, there's a couple of parts to cybersecurity. There's the part of cybersecurity that's more implementation or uh, we're focused on operations, making sure you have the right configuration on your switches, you know, making sure you have the right tools and you're doing penetration analysis and those sorts of things. And then there's also the other side of that, which is more of a research side of that, where you're trying to identify the new ways that people could be attacking and ways to prevent that. And that type of research is going on here at some of these institutions, some of the research institutions in the region. So you really have kind of both halves of that equation and a talent pool to draw from for both halves of that cybersecurity equation. So I think there's tremendous opportunity in that particular area. Developing these ambitious strategies involved government, business, workforce, higher ed, philanthropy, and other civic leaders from across the region's two enormous counties, Riverside and San Bernardino, coming together in new ways. This kind of cross-sectoral civic collaboration and united focus is crucial to building inclusive growth. Here's Rachel again with Brian Hawley. 
Why is a business leader, is it important for the region to build broader prosperity? And what do you think is going to happen if the region doesn't act? Yeah, as a region, we really have to be more diversified economically. The challenges that we had during the recession were primarily because we were focused uh, or limited in the sectors that our economy was based on. And without kind of a diversified economy, we can't handle those downturns as well. Obviously, that has impacts for the entire community and the region. We have done a lot of work here at Brookings over the past couple years on inclusive economic development and developing a business case for inclusive growth. What do you think is the business case for engaging on these issues and expanding opportunity in the Inland Empire? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward. A stable region provides stability for the businesses and the employees that reside in the region. It also provides a stable tax and economic base. So it's kind of a no-brainer. You really want inclusive growth, inclusive economic development, and a diversified economic platform. A big focus for a lot of firms, obviously, is workforce and having access to a skilled talent base. How are you thinking about that in relation to these inclusive growth issues? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the real assets that we have in this region is within probably about a 30-mile radius, we have five institutions that are either public or nonprofit of higher learning. We've got a couple of community colleges. We've got UC. We've got a Cal State. We've got a couple of nonprofit universities. And those all have a variety of programs. In many cases, there's also some entrepreneurship programs at those. And so having that kind of talent to draw from is is a very valuable resource. Cross-sectoral partnerships are particularly significant for ensuring that more of the Inland Empire's residents are prepared to access new and better jobs in the region. Here's Janice Rutherford again. We have grown incredibly in recent years, but that growth has not been equally spread across our population, in part because of our disparate educational attainment levels. We do have uh, folks who have been born and raised here and go to college and come back here or go to our many universities that are in the area, and we have a lot of those. But we're finding a really large percentage of our population that doesn't even get beyond high school. And that is not the making for success in the modern economy. It's only been in recent years that we've really embraced the idea that beyond high school doesn't have to mean a university degree, but can include a level of technical education and focus on soft skills that our high schools don't seem to be providing anymore. So we've worked really hard to create partnerships with businesses, K through 12 schools, community colleges to come up with unique programs that really offer training with long term career opportunities and career ladders to folks who aren't that interested in an academic education beyond high school. And within your district, employers have collaborated with university officials in a really interesting way to launch a new industrial technical learning center, which is called InTech. Could you talk a little about that and why it's so promising? InTech has been fabulously successful, taking folks, a lot of mid-career changers who have lost previous jobs and who need the skills of the modern economy in a very technical way. And they get to go to this center. They get community college credit. We have instructors from industry. And when they walk out of there, they are ready for a job at one of the industries that sponsors InTech. 
it has really helped people realize their dreams and shows us what's possible when we stop thinking of education as something that happens between the ages of 5 to 22 in a classroom at a remote campus. And what is the experience like for someone to go through this center and this program? What kinds of resources do they get access to? I think the biggest resource they get access to is the encouragement and the support that they can do something they'd never imagined doing in their life. I know a female friend of mine, her kids were in high school, um, her husband had passed, and she never imagined herself working with electronic equipment. To see her confidence just soar because of the time the instructors and her fellow students took with her because of the social support she had from the school was really inspiring. The mission to build inclusive growth, strengthen industries, and improve opportunity for workers has also brought together other groups. Here's Paul Granillo again with Rachel. Two groups that are often on different sides of the table in these situations are business and labor. How have you thought about bringing those two sides together in the context of these issues? Yeah, that's an incredibly important piece of the puzzle. And labor and business have more in common than separates them. Certainly, perspectives can be different and self-interest can be different. But if We both believe that having employees that are well-trained and proficient is the goal, then I think there are opportunities to work together. And even in the dialogue, self-interest, it shows, right? And if you're really trying to get to an end that's positive, well, then if you're only coming at it from self-interest and not for the good of of the whole, those people and those opinions they tend to be uh, pushed to the side because the ultimate goal is always going to be bigger than one person and whatever they're trying to get on their own behalf. As the Inland Economic Growth and Opportunity Campaign moves to action, the Inland Southern California Community Foundation is incubating implementation. Michelle Decker is the organization's president and CEO. She moved to the Inland Empire last year after spending several decades working in community development in Baltimore, Maryland, and Appalachian, Ohio. Here she is speaking with Rachel. In the Inland Empire, the Community Foundation has taken on a responsibility for incubating the IAGO campaign now that it's moving towards action and implementation. Why did this make sense, and what does that look like for the foundation to really take on this role? We're going to help build up the backbone infrastructure for IEGO. So the Community Foundation has the ability to play a role that will bring people together, but for whom our goal or our mission is really about just the larger betterment of the region. Community foundations are doing this increasingly, and I think everybody in philanthropy is smart these days that you're not going to write a grant or ship off a check to solve some of the bigger structural problems. And it would be better for us, rather than writing a check to solve homelessness, that we had an economy that could do it and a tax base that could do it. And so I think philanthropy now sees that it's got to get into leadership and advocacy and bigger systems thinking to be able to show up as philanthropy and do what we can, because we still need to support 
early childhood education and after school programs and pet shelters and a lot of conventional, maybe community-based nonprofit work. But we're all going to do better if the region's economy is inclusive and ahead of the curve on the changes that are coming down in the U.S. Michelle and Rachel also talked about the civic collaboration built around the Inland Economic Growth and Opportunity Campaign and the importance of its sustainability. You're kind of speaking to the value of the range of stakeholders that came together in this work across sectors, so business, government, university, philanthropy, across these two large counties in the region. How significant is that collaboration to the region's success, and what will be required to sustain that as you move forward into action? It's essential for our success, social capital, the trust, the norms of behavior that we have between sectors and between institutions and organizations really are the firmament for getting something done. And all of us who've been through planning processes and been in meetings and seen efforts succeed and seen efforts fail over the decades know that that's pretty fundamental. So fostering it, identifying when it's working, identifying when those relationships and norms perhaps aren't working, and seeing the conversations and seeing the building of trust and collaboration as very much a long-haul effort is important. So to sustain it and what's important to sustain it would be a commitment that is long-term. And I, you know, I could pull a number out. I could say 10 years, 20 years, But if we really think this is the way we need to work, there's sort of never a point where we're done. It's staying ahead of the evolution and staying ahead of the change. So we talk about, oh, it's a technology is changing everything that we do. Yeah, it is. And it's going to continue. But we still have these fundamentals in our human relationships and ways that we work together that we need to sustain and even get better at. When you've been at these tables in the region, what do you think is kind of the unique lens or perspective that you can bring as philanthropy versus these other actors that are at the table? When you are working on the ground in an organization around an issue, you have to make budget and the strategies that you've built are important and they need to be sustained. And so let's say you want to bring people together and everybody wants to solve a homelessness issue. Well, all of those organizations are invested in who they are and what they do and how they resource what they do. So the ability of community philanthropy to bring people to the table and to convene folks to have these discussions, it really is literally the benefit is that we are not an economic development organization or an entity within county government for whom certain ways of doing things just have been sustained over the years, or that can't really be challenged politically without some safety and some neutrality at the table where people can all kind of hash it out and think it through. So philanthropy's ability to just show up and say, what's important to you and how do we support you is absolutely golden. And I say this because for 27 years, I was running community-based organizations in both Baltimore and Appalachian, Ohio, and did it with terrific collaboration in water quality and housing and commercial revitalization and food systems 
all amazing. But I know that we had limitations as that entity that was implementing the work. And so folks can rely on a good community foundation like the Community Foundation serving Riverside and San Bernardino counties to step in and kind of see everybody as valid, but also to raise the tough questions and to help us all kind of focus on the larger goals. I've seen it as a kind of amazing force. You've talked about how, you know, the Inland Empire was a really interesting kind of different context to go work in, in the context of your career in community development. You know, it's obviously at the vanguard or the frontier of some macro trends that we look at here at Brookings in terms of demographic change, in terms of the nature of job quality, in terms of technological change and how automation is changing the economy. What lessons do you hope that other cities and regions can take away from this experience in the Inland Empire being out of front of these dynamics? And how do you hope the region might become a model for other places? Hmm. Well, we talk about this region, and it's so important to remember that it is 27,000 square miles, that it is sort of middle of the pack if you had to make us a state. And there are probably 24 other states below us who are smaller. And so I think that we can be a model in terms of our size and our scale and how we work within that size and scale, four and a half million people, and collaborate to solve issues that are affecting four and a half million people and all of the companies and all the municipalities and K through 12 kids that are, that are within that region. I think that diversity, racial diversity and inclusion is just crucial. And it has everything to do with fairness, with equity, but also with moving leadership into the right places and building on the assets that you have. And it's always going to come down to the people that are here. And so for the rest of the country, you know, when we live in a a lot of sound bites around race and a lot of confusion as a nation around race. We are so strong. Our diversity is our strength. And the more that we can lean into that and lift that up, the better off this country is going to be. So I'm just immensely proud to be here and to be working with so many different kinds of people who all have their sights on what does an inclusive economy look like. Here's Merrick again with what Brookings sees emerging as a result of the region's new collaboration and why that is so important. So as local leaders now shift to action, what are you hoping to see? One of the best outcomes we've seen from this process has been the different interests, different stakeholders coming together, sitting down at a table with labor representatives and business representatives in the logistics industry as one example individual business owners and entrepreneurs participating in this and taking leadership roles around different tactical strategies in the sectors, empowering the business leadership organizations, the community foundation, thinking of philanthropy's role, the community foundation taking on the incubator function for a distributed implementation model to execute on these strategies and tactics as a neutral, resourced organization that can be the backbone for collective impact. These process things don't 
sound like a lot, but in a region as diverse and large as this one, to have those new investors and stakeholders come together on a shared agenda that focuses on this kind of quality job creation and access for residents is really significant. And if you talk to people who've been involved in the process, I think you'll find that they're inspired by what has come out of this really long effort and what was generated by evidence and translated into action. And what is the potential of this action for the region and its residents? Here's former Riverside Mayor Ron Leverage. The key concept that I've had as an elected official is that uh, somebody's said, well, what are you going to do about your future? And the question is, you need to invent your future. What IEGO does in terms of an agenda and uh, focus is it, it points to a, a way that we can invent the future of this region. Otherwise, you're just a victim of circumstances and trends. You can find the report by Chad Shearer, Isha Shaw, and Merritt Gutman, Advancing Opportunity in California's Inland Empire, on our website at brookings.edu slash metro. A special thanks to Rachel Barker, policy analyst and engagement strategist with the Metropolitan Policy Program. She produced this episode, did the interviews, and wrote the script. I collaborated with her on a three-part cafeteria series in early 2018 on how cities are creating inclusive economies. Also, my thanks to Brookings scholars Merritt Gutman and Chad Shearer and all the Inland Empire participants, Al Arguello, Paulette Brown-Hines, Michelle Decker, Paul Granillo, Brian Hawley, Ron Loveridge, and Janice Rutherford. Al Arguello is Bank of America's Inland Empire market president, and Bank of America is a donor to Brookings. Paulette Brown-Hines is a member of the board of the James Irvine Foundation, which is a donor to Brookings and supported Brookings' engagement in the Inland Empire. At Brookings, the Inland Empire team also included Elizabeth Patterson, Carolyn Gatz, and Ben Sayo. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Our intern this summer is Betsy Bradas. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez, and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the current and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.